scripture reading this morning will be from 1 Corinthians 4, verses 14 through 16. 1 Corinthians 4, 14 through 16. In the Pew Bible, it is page 1015. 1 Corinthians 4, 14 through 16. I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. If you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus I became your father through the gospel. I exhort you, therefore, be imitators of me. Good morning. It is good to see each of you. If you're a guest, uh, again, we welcome you. It really encourages us that you're here, and we want to be an encouragement to you. We're thankful as we think about the opportunities we have this coming week, beginning in the morning, is Teen Vacation Bible School. This year, our Vacation Bible Schools will be at two different times. The Teen Vacation Bible School will begin in the morning, 9 to noon, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Be sure and get the word out. Let your, your uh, grandchildren that live somewhere in the area know, or relatives or friends, and, and it always is a tremendous week. And uh, our theme this year, to me, is very exciting. Four days that changed everything for everybody forever. As Philip and I sat down and talked about this, we just thought about what are four significant days that would change the lives of teens and the truth, all of us. The crucifixion, the day of the resurrection, the day the church began, and the Lord's second coming. Those are the themes of the four days. And even though we've had tremendous, just tremendous speakers in the past year, I don't know if we've ever put together a slate of four guys that are more capable uh, from beginning to end and in between uh, than the four that we have that will be coming in and speaking. Uh, Walt Lever will be here, Lonnie Jones, Jeremy Hall, and Mike McPherson. And so uh, it should be just an amazing, amazing time of learning. Uh, of course, it's vacation Bible school and those three hours each morning, we're going to have some time of a lot of fun. Uh, but we are really going to think about four days and how that ought to have a huge impact upon our life. The following week, June 23rd through 26th from 9 to noon, the three-year-old through fifth grade will have their vacation Bible school. And you probably noticed something. Where are those sixth graders? Sixth graders are going to have a mini camp. And uh, theirs is going to be that same week. Still register, if you will, for fourth uh, through, or three-year-old through fifth grade there online. The Sunday evening before, which is not tonight, but a week from tonight, on June 22nd, we're going to have an ice cream supper. Traditionally, we do this to kick off Vacation Bible School. Now, could you have a better way to kick off Vacation Bible School than an ice cream supper? You're probably thinking, no, but there is a way that's better, and that is homemade ice cream supper. And so uh, be planning on that as you go to the grocery store this week, and it is amazing how much homemade ice cream is brought in, so just keep doing what you've done all the other years, and it's going to be amazing. Uh, just quickly remember that we're urging people in the month of June, if you could ask God one question, what would it be? Please go to 12questions.net and submit that. Please be talking that up, and then we're going to come back in July, and we as a congregation are going to be involved in this, the 11th through the 
16th. The 13th is a Sunday through the 16th, and that's when we'll answer these questions that are the top 12. Uh, but we'll begin our work uh, as a campaign, even on that Friday. Uh, there's going to be more said in your Bible classes about this, in your adult Bible classes. Uh, I would just say this, please be sure and blank out that weekend, blank out the evenings to support that, and then... If at all possible, uh, figure out a, a Monday, Tuesday, or Wednesday, one of those days that you could take off work, take off a half a day of work. We're going to need hundreds involved in this each day. And so uh, please uh, be listening. And, and by the way, I know there's still a lot sitting here that says, well, I still don't know exactly what's going to happen during that time. Well, keep in mind, we're a month away. And so the, the plan as we unfold it is over the next two weeks, we hope that by, by two weeks from now, we hope that everybody in here will be able to say, okay, now I really understand everything that's going to be happening in the campaign. So be listening. Today there will be some announcements in your Bible class, and over the next week there will be others, and then on the 29th of this month there will be a lot of clarity brought to it. So we're just asking you to be prayerful to be willing to be involved, and over the next two weeks, as a lot of clarity is brought to it, find your place in it. And again, uh, to all of you fathers, we say happy Father's Day. Uh, what a wonderful gift God gives us when he gives us a good and a godly father. Uh, we, we love our dads, and we also recognize that, that on this day, it does not mean that everybody here has a warm feeling uh, because of, of thinking about fathers. It may be that there's some disappointments in your life as you think about father. Or it may be that you've had losses. And, uh, and, and with those of you that are uh, going through that, we, we want to share uh, in, in your, your sorrow and in your grief. And we want to encourage and support. And, and saying that, we want to remember the Malakot family. Uh, we want to encourage them and uh, strengthen them in any way we can. Uh, today is visitation and tomorrow is the funeral. And there will be more said about that later. But uh, we, we think about this wonderful topic of fatherhood. And, and we know that because of personal experiences, it comes with, with mixed emotions. But isn't it wonderful that we have a heavenly father that gave us holy writings to tell us the best things that we need to know about fathers. And so especially if you are a father this morning, I want you to think about this passage that we're going to study to, so that all of us as fathers could hopefully walk out of here saying, okay, I'm a little more focused. I'm reminded of what God wants and calls me to be, and I want to set out to do that. Fatherhood does change a lot of things. The U.S. Open taking place even right now, earlier this week. There was a man that was a caddy. His name was Scott. You say, well, there's nothing unusual about a caddy. Well, usually, maybe there's not a lot of things unusual. They, they work six or seven days a week. They, they lug a bag around that weighs up to 50 pounds. They don't ever stand, if you will, in the limelight. They're always the secondary guy. They're constantly taking measurements, taking notes. They're constantly giving advice. They sweat. They work as hard as anybody out there. And they don't have the huge prize winnings, at least like the golfer that wins has. And so you think, what's unusual about Scott? Well, Scott was the wealthiest man on all of the course. Now you think of all the professional golfers out there that were multi-millionaires. One of them out there is our brother in Christ, Kenny Perry. I hope you have the opportunity to get to know him. And I uh, look forward to spending eternity with him. Great man. He's won $33 million already in his life. 
He's out there, but he wasn't anywhere close uh, to the richest man out there. The richest man out there was the caddy named Scott. You see, back in the early 80s, he started a co-founder of Sun Microsoft. And then a few years later, he sold it for $7.4 billion, with a B, dollars. Now, he humbly says, wait a minute, wait a minute. I know there's a lot of talk using the B word about me, but he said, I don't really know if I'm worth quite a billion. And the reporter said, but close, and he just smiled. What would cause a billionaire to go out there and lug a 50-pound bag around this week? You probably already know the answer to that. His son, Maverick, is 18 years old. He's one of the youngest out there on the course. He's only been playing competitive golf for just a few years, and the only reason he played golf to begin with, it wasn't a dream to be a professional golfer. And still, even to this day, it's not his dream to be a professional golfer. His dad took the four sons out, and they just loved playing golf together. His dad's a great golfer, and out on the course, throughout the years growing up, his dad just taught him how to play the game. He thought it would be a great honor with Father's Day weekend to say to his dad, you want to go and caddy for me? And his dad, of course, loved every moment of it. Isn't it interesting how fatherhood changes things? You'd normally say a billionaire is not going to be out there as a caddy. Oh, but if he's a father, he might be out there. How many of us as fathers have done things that otherwise we probably would have never done? This morning, I want to talk with you about some things that fathers do that we might not otherwise ever do. Fathers dive into problems that other people would just look the other way. You see, when we're looking at the book of 1 Corinthians in our study right now, we're looking at a book that is full of kingdom living, and at the same time, it's full of problems. And so what we learn is just because we come a part of the Lord's kingdom doesn't mean all of our problems go away. But here's what God does expect. God expects children to have a father that will step in and become a part of the solution during times of problems. That's interesting, and I want you to hear that again. God expects children to have fathers that will step in and become a part of the solution in the times of problem. And the truth is, a lot of people won't do that. A lot of people would much rather take the, the course of least resistance. How many times has there been something being done or said wrong and someone would say, oh, I don't want to talk to them about it. I'm afraid they won't like me if I mention it. Oh, I, I just don't like to get involved in conflict. I, I'm not going to do anything. Can you imagine if the church had no one that would step in as a father-like figure and say, hey, we need to discuss this. this. This is wrong. And we need to address it. Can you imagine how quickly the church would just run into an immoral ditch? Can you imagine how quickly the church would become just like the world? Unless there were people like Paul who said, I love you enough, I'm going to treat you like my children. I'm going to take on the role of a spiritual father. And when there's problems, we're going to talk about them. We're going to study them. Look with me, if you will, back to that text. Let's read that verse again, verse 14. It's 1 Corinthians, the fourth chapter. Notice what he says. I do not write these things to shame you, but as my beloved children. 
In the very next verse, he would call himself as a father or describe himself as a father. And so he's got this relationship where he says, I'm going to go deeper than just what the average person would go. And now I'd like for you to look at that verse again if you're looking at the screen, except this time, notice we have something else underlined. He says, I do not write these things. So he's talking to them as if they're his beloved children. And he says, now listen, I don't write these things to shame you. I'm writing them to warn you. Well, what are these things? Well, for four chapters, what has he been doing? He's been talking to them about problems. In just a minute, we'll review them. And then what is he going to do for the next 12 chapters? For the next 12 chapters, he's going to keep talking to them about problems. And so he writes to them to say, you understand, I'm not just bringing out all these problems just so I can shame you. There's a much higher calling and a much greater reason to why he would do this. He's going to treat them as if you are my beloved children. Now, with that in mind, and I don't have slides for this, so if you have your Bible open, I want you to scan with me. And if you'll go back a few weeks in your mind and before, we studied several of these things. But I'd like for you to look with me in 1 Corinthians, the first chapter. And I want you to, we're, we're going to scan about six verses. And all we're doing here is showing what are some, this isn't all, but what are some of the things that Paul means when he says these things? He's, when he says, I'm writing these things to you, what are the things that he's writing to you? Well, one of the things that he wrote to them in the first chapter in verse 10, at the end of it, was that there be no divisions among you, that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. That's a beautiful teaching, isn't it? You, did you hear that? You got that? Here is Paul saying, I want you to not be divided. And two verses later, what does he say? I need to talk with you. You're divided. Some of you are following Paul, some of you are following Apollos, some of you are following Cephas, some of you say you're following Christ. But the problem is, <laughs> the microphone is loud, that's the big problem. The problem is, the problem is that there are divisions among you and what you need to have is unity. And then notice, as we read down just a couple more verses, look there in verse 18. The message of the cross is foolishness. Still in chapter 1, to those who are perishing. And for the rest of this chapter, what he is urging them to do is realize, if you stay with the gospel of Jesus Christ, you're choosing a way of wisdom and of power. If you're not following the gospel of Jesus Christ, you are choosing foolishness and powerless living because you're relying only upon your own power. And so then that brings us to the second chapter in verse 2 where he says, when I came to you, what did he do? He says, I preached only one thing, Christ and him crucified. We can see that also in 1 Corinthians 15, 1, 2, 3, and 4. He says, when I came to you, the first thing I preached was the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. And then when we go down to the second chapter and in verse 12, we see that Paul says, I received this message from God. And then, are you ready? See what he's doing? For example... In the very first chapter, the first thing he said was, we need to be unified. And he came right out of the gate and said, you're not unified, you're divided. And now he has spent several verses saying, you need to rely upon the message of the cross. It is wisdom and it is power. And he says, I got this message from God. And then notice what he says in the third chapter in verse 1. Third chapter, verse 1. I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. He talks about having to feed them milk. And even says in verse 3, you are still carnal. For where there is envy, strife, and division among you, etc. Do you see what he's doing? He's saying, these are the things I'm writing to you about. 
You ought to be living by the gospel, the wisdom of Jesus Christ. And I've come to you and I want to talk with you about those deeper spiritual things. You can't even understand what I'm trying to teach you. You're still living carnal. And that carnal living has caused you to have envy. You're envious toward each other. Strife. You can't get along with each other. And that's going to lead to what? Division. Where would that kind of thinking come from? Well, think about it. If you stop focusing on Christ, who are you going to be focused on? Yourself and earthly living. You getting this? You focus on Christ and spiritual things or you focus on temporal things and yourself? Well, were they focusing on their self? Look at the fourth chapter and in verse 6. Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively transferred to myself and Apollos for your sake that you may learn in us not to think beyond what is written that none of you may be puffed up on behalf of one against the other. What is that one against another? It's talking about that envy, that strife that was leading to division. Why did they have that envy? They were puffed up. It's another way of saying they become arrogant. Listen, we stop focusing on Christ, we're going to start focusing on ourselves. And when we focus on ourselves, what do we start doing? We start that competitive game. Oh, I have more resources than you have. Oh, I have greater ability than you have. Oh, I'm more talented than you. Oh, I'm smarter than you. Oh, I'm just better than you. I'm more athletic than you. I'm more powerful than you. Where, where does that idea come from that we're in competition with each other? Well, we just went through it. Whenever we take our focus off Christ, we put our focus on ourselves and upon others. And here's where it really comes from. You reading with me? Look at verse 7. This is where he really describes it. Fourth chapter and verse 7. For who makes you differ from one another? Pause there for a moment. Maybe you're real athletic and the person sitting next to you is not athletic at all. Who made you different from each other? Did you just go out sometime in your youth before you were even old enough to remember and pass by a store and buy athleticism? Where, where did you get it? Maybe you are naturally more intelligent than the person sitting next to you. Where did you get that intelligence? Did you go out and buy it somewhere? Maybe you have a charisma about you that you can just walk into an office, you can walk on a team, you can walk into a church family, and you just have a power, if you will. You have an influence about you, and where did you purchase that? Where, where did you go out and, and just, you didn't have it, and you went out and you walked back home with it? Where did that happen? You see what Paul is saying? Let's read the rest of verse 7. For who makes you differ from another? And what do you have that you did not receive. Now, if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you've not received it? Brethren, he says, I want to write these things to you and I'm going to talk to you like you're my beloved children. The very next verse, in the fourth chapter and verse 15, he says, I'm going to talk to you like I'm a father. And he says, I realize where all this division's coming from. It's rooted in your arrogance. You want to compete with each other. And the only reason that you're rooted in that arrogance is because you stop focusing on Christ. The only way we can have the same mind and the same judgment is not all of us focus on each other. All of us focus on the Lord. And when we do have gifts, we need to pause and be reminded. 
Where did you get that gift and why do you have it? God gave me that gift and he gave me the gift to what? Serve others. So instead of being competitive with it, let's say that God has given you more resources than the person sitting in this auditorium that is struggling right now. God gave me the resources. I need to share with someone that has less. Whatever it is. You have the influence of power. Do you abuse it or do you use it to serve? You have the gift of intelligence. Do you use it to bless others or do you use it to make them feel bad? You have the blessings of talents and abilities and maybe whatever your ability is, you do it really, really well. Do you do it well to serve God by serving others or do you do it well to make other people feel inferior? That's what Paul's getting at here. He says, I see all kinds of divisions. And Paul says, now please understand, I do not write these things. And let, let's go to the next slide. It's the very same verse again. Notice this. He says, I do not write these things to shame you, but as my beloved children... I warn you. So what were all these things? These things that he was saying, could we say in a nice way? It's very blunt, wasn't it? But in a blunt, nice way, what Paul is saying, I'm having to write chapter after chapter about how you're doing things wrong. But then you notice what Paul says in these verses? Paul's backed up in these verses to show his motive and a tenderness to some degree. Or really he's showing a tough love to some degree. He's saying, you realize that the reason I'm pointing out all these things, you start back to the first chapter and you read up to this point and he pauses and he says, the reason I'm pointing out all these things is not because I just want you to know all the things you're doing wrong. Let's pause here and talk specifically to fathers for a minute. Or maybe I should talk about myself. And maybe you see if you're a father, if it relates to you. If someone would have told me before I became a father how easy it was to get in the habit of being negative, I wouldn't have believed it. It amazes me sometimes how easy it is to become the negative, habitual, noticing everything that is wrong father. Paul is saying, that's not why I'm pointing these things out. I'm not going to drive home and notice how you mowed the yard wrong. I'm not going to walk through the garage and notice how you left everything out. And that's all I'm going to talk about. I'm not going to walk in the house and look at your report card. And the only thing I talk about are the failures on the report card. The things that you could have done better. I'm not going to look at the way you dress. And every time I see you, the only thing I'm going to bring out are the things that I don't like the way you dress. I'm not going to, when I see you around the friends, only thing I ever talk about are the things I don't like about your friends or I don't like about your, the way you interact with your friends. Fathers, do you realize that there's no righteousness and there's no glory in just listing things that are wrong just so we can say, I told you everything you did wrong. There's nothing righteous about that. I want you to notice this verse again. He did shame them. Why? You cannot have correction without some merit of shame. Why would I ever change anything if I didn't think that I was wrong in it? In other words, let's say I'm doing something wrong. And as a brother or sister in Christ, you come and talk to me. And if I'm not convinced it's wrong, I'm not going to change. 
And so a part of correcting is to help the individual identify what you are doing is wrong. And then when it hits you, remember Nathan talking to David? Finally, whenever he told him about the sheep and the little lamb that was taken, all of a sudden it dawned on him how wrong that was. And then can you imagine when Nathan looks at David and says, you are the man, David became ashamed. But now, did Nathan do that just so he could walk away and say, I put the king in his place. I told him everything he did wrong. No. No, it's the last part of that. I didn't shame you just to shame you. But I'm doing it to warn you. In other words, I'm helping you see the danger and I'm helping you to see the correction that needs to be made. What a beautiful thing whenever a father will not just look the other way when wrong is taking place. Oh, I don't want to get involved in this. I don't, that, that's just going to be another headache. What about a father that loves you enough that says, you know what? When you're wrong, there's something you can count on. I'm going to come and talk with you about it. And because of that, there's going to be moments of shame. But I promise you, I'll always follow up to help you walk through that to a point of correction. I will shame you to help correct you and I'll walk with you with instruction and with daily living to help you get to where you need to be. What would that look like? Let's go to a couple of passages here and uh, we can't bring out everything in these passages but I'd just like for you to think about how shame is supposed to lead to correction. 2 Corinthians 7th chapter. Remember this is Paul still writing the same people and so it's a very similar setting that we're even addressing right now. And notice what he says about correction. Now I rejoice... Not that you were made sorry. See, they had an element of shame and they were sorry. And Paul says, I rejoice. And it's not just that that was the end, but that was the means to produce what? But that your sorrow led to repentance. See, sorrow is not the end. It is the means to lead to an end of change. The shame is supposed to produce change. That's why we bring it out as fathers. Let's continue reading, but you got the point there. For you were made sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow, in other words, what's a good way to bring shame in someone's life? Godly sorrow produces repentance, that's a change, leading to salvation. Not to be regretted, you won't be sorry about that. But the sorrow of the world produces death. Now, think about what we're studying, and Paul uses the same word warning here, but it's not translated in our English usually as warning. But look at Ephesians, the sixth chapter, verse four. Ephesians six and four, he says, and you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath. How are you going to shame your children without making them angry? That's why we need the wisdom of Solomon, but that's why our children need to know that we're not bringing out things that are wrong just because that's our habit. In other words, I'm your dad, and my dad is to make you feel like a loser. A lot of kids feel that way. What about if instead our kids know? No, if dad brings up something to me, I may disagree with it, but the fact is I know he is out for my best interest. And that's what we want our kids to know, is that we will love them and we will help them walk through whatever it is. So notice, we're not out to provoke them to wrath, but what? Bring them up in the training, and the word admonition there is the same word back in our, in our text of 1 Corinthians 4, warning. It's the very same word. And notice, bring them up in, in the training or the warning or admonition of the Lord. In other words, we're going to come to you and we're going to bring solutions. This is what's wrong. I hope you feel guilty. 
Because if you don't feel guilty for doing wrong, you're not going to make a correction. But I hope you realize we're not going to leave you there. As a father, I'm going to help you learn a better way to do this. Don't continue to be wrong. Let's do this the right way. Now with that in mind, look at Hebrews the 12th chapter and let's just pull out some phrases out of this great passage of correction. And, and look in Hebrews 12 and verse 9. Furthermore, we had human fathers who what? Corrected us. The only way you can have correction is that there is shame brought into the life of the child, but yet there is that ability to walk with them through the point of correction. Now let's notice as we go to verse 10, notice the last part talks about what God does for us. He, God, for our profit that we may be partakers of His holiness. Will God correct you? Absolutely. God will discipline and correct you. Why? He wants that end. In other words, God's not saying, I just want you to feel bad because I like to see people feel bad. God says, no, I'm going to correct you and discipline you as my child because I want to see you become a holy person. Now, notice the last part of verse 12. Afterward, it yields peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. See, all three verses that we've read right here about God's correction and about what he expects fathers to do in the lives of children is all about the end. Must there be shame and correction? Yes. Why? Just so kids can feel bad? No. Because we want to lead to holiness. We want to lead to that fruit of repentance, that fruit of peace. Do you see what Paul is saying? I know we put a lot of things together there in three passages. But do you see what Paul is saying? He says, I'm writing these things, and I know I've said a lot of things to you that it's probably painful to hear. Probably brought a lot of shame to you. But I'm bringing them to your life because I want to bring correction. I want to bring fruit. I want to bring peace into your life. And so how's that done? Look in 1 Corinthians 4th chapter and verse 15. He uses an, an um, exaggeration, hyperbole here. He says, you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet you do not have many fathers. Now, the word instructor there is, in the Greek is the word for a subordinate under the father. It's not exactly this, but maybe in our day and time, the best thing we could liken it to in our day and time is like a nanny. In other words, someone comes in the house and they serve as a nanny. They're going to take some of the responsibility of the children. They're going to make sure that maybe they get to school and etc. And so what Paul is doing here is he's using an exaggeration. There's not any person on earth, surely, that's ever had 10,000 nannies. But what he's saying is you could have a slew of people that you could bring into your life and you could hire them to come in and do things for you. But you know what's real hard to find? You're not going to find many people that will come into your life and they'll be like a father to you. Why? It takes a lot of time and it also takes a special person that says, you know what? I'm not going to tell you everything you want to hear. I'm going to tell you what you need to hear. Did you get that, fathers? It's a big difference in fatherhood than being a friend. There are a lot of friends that won't tell someone what they need to hear. Fathers or in the lives of children, to tell them even the things they do not want to hear. And so that's what Paul is saying here. You can have thousands of people that will come in your life and do some things. He says, listen, I'm going to be one of those few. I'm going to be a father that when you need to hear something, I'm not going to tell you to shame you, but I am going to tell you to bring correction into your life. And so what does that look like? Did you notice from 
Verse 14 and 15, the language has become about children. And so now on this next screen, it's the same verse. But notice those last verses, those last phrases there. He continues that language of childbearing. Notice he says, For in Christ Jesus, I have begotten you through the gospel. You know the word begotten. I mean, I know we don't use it today a lot in 2014, but, but you know that word. It's the very idea that two have come together and conceived and they have begotten a child. And you see what Paul is saying? Paul says, listen, I know who you are. I spent 18 months there. I was the one that walked into Corinth and I lived my life in Jesus Christ. And I preached the gospel. See that? In the gospel, through Christ, I preached the gospel to you and you were born into Jesus Christ because I came to you as one living in Christ and I preached to you the gospel of Jesus Christ. In other words, Paul is saying, I know who you are. Why are you living like this now? That's not how you were given birth. In other words, it's almost like saying, you're better than this. You are not living up to the family heritage. You didn't become a Christian to compete against each other and to cut each other down. You became a Christian to focus on the Lord and to be united and to lift each other up. Paul says, I know. I'm your spiritual father. Isn't it interesting that if a mother or a father is in Christ, in a sense, I know we're talking spiritually here, okay? But in a sense, if you're in Christ and you give birth to someone spiritually, where should they be? Naturally, they should be in Christ. Can you imagine someone saying, like myself, I was born on Long Island, New York. Can you imagine me saying, I was born on Long Island, New York, and my mother's never been to Long Island, New York. You know, you probably have to, whoa, what, what are you talking about there? Do you see what Paul is saying? Paul is saying, I know where I was. And I know what I taught when you were born into Christ. Now, are you hanging on to those two things? Because we're about to close this really quick. But it's going to be, because of Paul, not because of me, it's going to be a powerful, if you get to this point, it's a powerful ending. So he has really built up this idea of, you're my children. I'm your father. And I will shame you to correct you because I love you that much. So where do I need to bring you back around to in correction? We need to come back around to where you were born. You were born in Christ and you were born by living the gospel. In Christ, living the gospel. And look at the very next verse. The very next verse is, is so important, but it's so simple. Therefore, I urge you, imitate me. I, remember the previous verse? I'm in Christ. I preach the gospel. I'm urging you, Imitate means follow. Follow me. At least four times Paul tells them or others in the New Testament, imitate or follow me. But here's something real interesting about the word urge. The word urge in the original language has to do with calling to one side. Like if, if someone gives you an invitation to come walk with them. It's not like an invitation that says, hey, I'm going to invite you to Disney World and I'm not going. I'm just going to pay your way. I know you'd line up, right? But that's not the deal. I'm just giving you an illustration. All right. And so imagine that would be an invitation where you might accept the invitation, but we're not together. That's not the original word there. The original word of urge is, 
I am over here and I am inviting you to come near me. Paul, where are you? Previous verse. I'm in Christ and I preach the gospel. I urge you, I'm inviting you to come over here with me. Now do what? Let's do it together. That's what I'm doing. You follow me. Let's do this together. Fathers, how different would all of our families be if fathers could honestly say, I live my life in Christ. I refuse to live out in the world. And I'm going to live my life by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And spiritually, I want to give birth, if you will, to everybody in my family. And I want to do it by saying, here's where I walk and here's what I talk. I urge you to follow me. What a powerful lesson for fatherhood. What I learned today, number one, never shame, just a shame. It's a bad habit, bad habit. Number two, fathers are to warn children with shame that leads to change. Number three, fathers need to live in Christ and through the gospel. Then say, listen to me and follow me. But I want all of you, not just fathers, I want all of you to think about your influence as we ask this final one. Everybody, what if they did? What if they followed you? What if your best friend followed you right now? What if your family members followed you right now? What if your co-workers followed you right now? Where would they spend eternity? It's not a light thing to be able to say to someone else, I live my life in Christ and I live my life by the gospel. I'm not perfect, but I can tell you where I live. And I ask you to follow. Let's do this together. This morning, that's our plea as a congregation. We're not perfect, but we know where we want to be. We want to be in Christ and we want to be driven by the Word of God, motivated by His love, speaking the love, the truth in love. This morning, if it would scare you for someone to say, I'm going to follow you, wouldn't it be a good time to turn around and live a life so that you could say, come on, let's walk together toward heaven. This world is full of a lot of problems. And what children need? Children need parents that can help them find godly solutions. And fathers are supposed to be a part of that solution. We need spiritual fathers among us that will invest in our life and talk to us, not to shame us only, but to correct us when we're wrong. This morning, if you're ready to be immersed into Christ, are you ready to be restored?